0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to Ask Shane Anything. This is a show where you can literally ask me anything, as long as it's not too personal. Now, this show is a reward for all our patrons, but only patrons who pledge at $7 or more per month get to ask me questions. So get on it. Bump that pledge up to $7 a month and get involved. But like I said, everyone gets to watch. Got some great questions from you guys. Let's get straight to them. Our first question comes from Mountain Lifter on Sifted. Now his question's a little longer than what we could fit in the graphic. I'm gonna read the whole question, but the graphic's just gonna have the last part of it. As a 37-year-old engineer, I find myself thinking, you don't know what you're talking about when I encounter fresh graduates or engineers with fewer years of experience. Funnily, I was at the receiving end of this attitude when I was starting out in my 20s, and at that time, I thought older engineers were inflexible, unwilling to think out of the box or learn new ways of doing things. I wanted to ask you about your own experience of working with people younger, therefore less experienced than you at GT, how your attitudes evolved as you were growing older in the gaming industry, and if you're wary of becoming a set-in-your-ways grandpa. That is a great question, Mountain Lifter. Um, Well, I mean, it, it, it hasn't just been working at Game Trailers where I've dealt with younger employees, because even before I was kind of a hiring manager hiring employees, I was working with interns who were obviously green and just learning the ropes, so... I guess the best thing I would say is a lot of it depends on the person. If the person is open-minded and willing to accept instruction, um, I think it's great. I think once you establish a relationship with an employee, that opens the door for the back and forth where you can learn from each other. Um, And as a manager, I've always had an open-door policy. So if any of my employees feel like they're having issues with me or anyone else on my staff – They can come in and they can talk to me about it. I make sure that they know that day one on the job. I don't want anyone to feel intimidated coming in to talk to me about anything. Well, obviously, they don't need to come and talk to me about personal stuff, but at least work-related things. So I think having the open-door policy, making people feel like um, they have a voice and that myself as a manager has an open mind and is willing to listen to new ideas, I think that symbiotic relationship is what makes good companies, honestly. I think you need to have that back and forth. You need the perspective of the younger person coming in who maybe isn't jaded by a lot of the things that the workers who have worked in that business for a long time might be jaded by. Uh, and in the reverse of that, you need someone there who's experienced to teach the green young people how to do things the right way. And when I say do things the right way, there are certain tenets of doing things correctly. Now, there's wiggle room with creativity and approaches and things like that, but there's certain things that either you do it the right way or you do it the wrong way. And as a manager, I feel like it's your job to be there to teach them the right and the wrong way stuff. And then to be open to allow them to have a, a voice in the wiggle room part of the work environment. So um, I don't feel like I've ever cut myself off to young employees. I feel like I'm, I can learn a lot from them, but also... The nature of the business that we work in, you kind of have to keep up. Um, you can't really not pay attention to technology and survive working, one, in games and two, working in digital. It just doesn't work that way. Digital is one of the fastest evolving vocations that you can have. If you sit still, you die. It's basically You're basically like a shark when you work in digital. So um, I don't think anyone would last very long in this industry if you were not open to working with younger folks. Our next question comes from Van Halen619. I recently got engaged. I will be getting married next year. Do you have any advice for a happy marriage? First of all, Van Halen619, congratulations on taking the plunge. Uh I seems like anymore I see a lot of people suggesting that people should not get married. And a lot of people say, what's the point? And honestly, I can agree with that on some levels. It really is just kind of this. Thing that our society is built as a construct that we feel like we need to assimilate into and become a part of. Um, I did not get married until much later in life, but I will say, at least relatively speaking anyway, but I will say that I just had my 15th wedding anniversary with my wife. So our wedding is going great. And has marriage worked out for me? Sure. Has it not worked out for me? No. It's been great for me. But it doesn't work for everyone. So anyone who says if they're not interested in marriage and they don't understand, I get that. Again, being open to new ideas from younger folks. I totally get that. Marriage has worked out great for me because I have an awesome wife, but I took a really long time before I decided who I wanted to marry. I dated lots of women. Um, I dated my wife for a really long time before I proposed to her to the point where her family was like, what is going on here? When are you going to do it? Um, So I made sure that I found the right one before I got married. And it turns out I did. Um, We're going to be married until the end of time. Like, I really don't foresee any issues. So I guess I could give you some advice for a successful marriage. But the first part of it is like, don't jump into it. (laughs) Don't just marry like the first person that you fall in love with. I think that's a mistake that everybody makes because... Things change when you live together. And this is another thing I highly suggest. And I know some people, their religion may forbid them from doing it. I don't care. I highly recommend living with the person before getting married. Because it's so easy to put on airs when you're just going out on dates all the time. And you just have like one or two days a week where you have to be on it. Um, When you live together, all that pretense is washed away. And you just figure out who that person really is. And therefore, I highly recommend living with someone at least a year. Go through all the seasons with them before you pull the trigger. That would be my first thing before getting married. Once you're married, take your vows seriously. Now, you may have your own vows, but the core of the wedding vows, take them seriously. Don't say them if you don't believe them. And if you do take them seriously, like my wife and I did, you will have no problems if you just follow the vows that you swear in front of your family, in front of your friends, that you are going to take care of this person, you are together forever, and you're gonna go through life with them through thick and thin. There's gonna be thick, there's gonna be thin. Are you gonna survive through the thin? That's the X factor. And again, I think living with someone a year before you decide to pull the trigger on marriage is something that will help with that. So that's the first thing, just take your vows seriously. And second of all, I would say, be prepared for a couple curveballs. There's gonna be... A couple things, even if you've lived with your significant other for a year, there's still going to be things that come up that you're like, whoa, wow, that caught me off guard. Just expect those and don't freak out when they happen. Take a step back, take a deep breath, say we're committed to each other. This is minor in the grand scheme of things. And then figure out a way to talk with the person and work it out. Never get angry and never discuss things when you're angry in your relationship. So that's another thing I would suggest. And then number three is just be good to the person. You'll you'll be shocked at, if you treat people well, how well they will treat you in return. And that's the whole idea of a marriage, the symbiotic relationship, the back and forth. So three rules to marriage. Those are the three I would give you. But most importantly, just make sure that they're the right one before you get into a marriage. And our next question comes from Joaquin Dragoon. With AI becoming more advanced, as seen with AI-created art, do you think that game development will ultimately benefit from AI doing some of the work? Do you think it's bad for creativity? Perfect timing for this question because of late, I have been diving into chat GPT a little bit. I don't have time to really mess with it. I've watched a couple YouTube videos of kind of how to work with it, and so I've just been kind of fiddling when I have a couple minutes here and there. Haven't really used it to its fullest, but I have watched some videos of people who have and oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I can see why you're asking this question. Because if you watch any video of somebody using chat GPT that really knows what they're doing, it's freaking mind blowing. And you look at some of the art, like you're talking about how AI art, a lot of you can just go to this website, pay some money, and they'll give you these gorgeous like hand drawn portraits of yourself or whatever else you wanted to make. And the art is stunning. And it has to be frustrating because, look, I know some people who went to art school and no joke, I could draw or paint better than them after they graduated. And some of those people who maybe decided they wanted to be art students, but art wasn't really their calling, I could see where they might be a little salty because the AI art is better than the art that they're creating. So I don't think AI is a threat to people who are really talented. I think AI is a threat for the people on the margins who maybe aren't the best at what they're doing. Um, and that trickles over to everything. It's really scary. Like, it can do almost anything. Like, it can write for you. And it's very hard to tell that some AI wrote it and a human didn't write it. That's incredible. All on its own, writing is one of the most complex things that the human mind does. And for an AI to do it and be able to fool me into believing that a human actually wrote what it's writing, that's amazing. We already talked about the art. Mind-blowing! Mind-blowing! Like, just to be able to tell somebody, like, a, a computer something, just completely insane. Again, like a Mad Lib or whatever, where you're just inserting random nouns and adjectives into a sentence. And for it to create something out of that, it is mind-blowing. I mean, it's a little scary, I'll be honest with you. And if you're an artist, I can see why, even if you are on the fringes, you might be scared. Because some of the stuff that AI is cranking out is awesome. So... Is it a threat to artists in general? A little bit, but it's mostly a threat to people who aren't really good at what they do. Now, I think the advantage to this is that you can automate a lot of mundane tasks. For example, let's say you run a website and you're just rewriting press releases or whatever. Why would you waste your time doing that anymore? Just put the press release into chat GPT, let it spend five seconds writing the thing, and then just copy edit it really quickly and move some things around and there you go. So... It can automate mundane things, not just with writing though, but with game development as well. I have already watched a video where a guy just talked or just typed in commands to chat GPT and built a game. It built a game on its own. It was simple. It's like a 2D Atari 2600 level game, but it's going to get better. So yes, absolutely. Can it do things like populate a landscape with trees and rocks and shrubs and things like that? Yes, it can. You don't need to hire someone to do stuff like that anymore. All the mundane parts of any job look like they're going to be able to be replaced by AI. Now, my dad always told me, if you if there's something in your industry that's taking away all the jobs, learn how to fix the thing that's taking the jobs. Now, he would reference that with robots. He'd be like, look, son, if... The world is being overtaken by robots. Learn how to fix the robots. And I think a little bit of that can apply to AI. Like, if you can get good at using the AI and be better at using the AI, does that not become a skill on its own? So there's different angles to look at. Like, the the taking away of the mundane tasks, I think, is going to be a game changer as far as AI is concerned. And it may be for the good. It may be for the bad. But I do think, overall, productivity will go up. Hi-ya! Our last question for this episode comes from Derek D 111 This is the first time, at least that I can remember, that all three of the console makers have first-party Game of the Year contenders. Zelda, Starfield, and Spider-Man 2. Which do you think will sell the best? And to make it somewhat comparable, consider it a sale if someone gets Starfield on Game Pass but puts more than three hours into it. Okay, Derek, I got to say that your last little caveat there kind of ruins the experiment. Because if you're going to say someone who spent $15 a month spent three hours with the game, that means that they would have spent $70 on the game? I don't agree with that. So I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm just going to disqualify that. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at it as if Starfield were sold at retail and you couldn't get it for basically $15. So I think that's the more fair way to do it. I understand what you're trying to do there. I just think there's a better way to approach this. So you're right. Um, All three of the big three have a chance at publishing the game of the year this year. And it's rare, but it's, it's happened many times before. Um, But this year, you're right. We got some ringers here. So I'm going to take it game by game. Um, Let's start with Zelda. Zelda, probably the game we know the least about. I don't know, Star... We don't know a lot about Starfield either, to be honest. Um, but it's probably... Zelda's probably the one we know the least about as far as what the game itself is. The last Zelda, Breath of the Wild, was the best-selling Zelda ever, first of all, which is a big deal. Um, but also just a sales juggernaut in general. To sell over 20 million copies, that's just... That's a whole other tier that very few games hit. So, it was a big smash hit for Switch, and now... Think about the install base of Switch, how much bigger it is. Now, what's working against Zelda is that, traditionally, the first Zelda of every console generation sells like gangbusters, and then the second one sells about half of that. I do not think that that is going to happen this time. I think that this game may not sell as well as Breath of the Wild, or it will get to the same sales as Breath of the Wild, even though there may be some fatigue there. So, I think it's going to sell really well. I think it'll sell 15 million, pretty much easily first couple months and then it'll be a steady seller after that and then i think a lot of it will depend on whether there's a specific version released for the next switch or whatever nintendo's next console is or if there it'll just be a playable on the new console a lot of that will depend on what kind of legs it has because once nintendo turns a page for that new console most consumers are as well so that could affect sales of it but overall i think it's going to do very very well um okay we'll talk about spider-man 2 next The first Spider-Man from Insomniac was a PlayStation exclusive. It did very, very well. It sold 13 or 14 million copies fairly quickly. Um, Now, this is a PlayStation 5 exclusive, which makes a difference because the install base for PlayStation 5 isn't gigantic. Now, it is roughly the same as the install base was when the first Spider-Man came out, and it did very well. And I would say as well that the appetite for superhero stuff and Marvel stuff doesn't seem to subside as much as, say, a Zelda does. I don't know why, it's just the way it is. Maybe some people that are Marvel fans don't pick up the first one, they do pick up the second one, because overall, let's be honest, there's more Marvel fans than there are fans for something like Zelda. I know some people may argue about that, but that's just my opinion. Um, So, Spider-Man 2, oh man, that's tough. I'm guessing it sells ultimately higher than the first game. Because I also think that this game is going to get a higher review score. I think it's going to get over a 9, whereas the last one was like mid to high 8. I think this will score higher, and I think that will help generate some sales. But also, I just think that there just haven't been a lot of exclusives for PlayStation 5 that are built just for the PS5. Sony's been double dipping. So I think that'll give it another little nudge. So again, I expect Spider-Man 2 to to sell very, very well. Now, finally, Starfield. I I left that last... On purpose because it is an anomaly and we do have like a special rule that we're following to predict sales for starfield um i would argue that starfield as i'm sitting right now is probably gonna sell the least of the the three if it were for sale for 70 bucks one because it's a brand new ip that no one's ever heard of two Looking at Bethesda's track record for its game releases, a lot of times it releases games that are buggy or unfinished, and so its review scores could come in significantly lower than Zelda or Spider-Man. Could get a perfect 10, but it could also, it has a higher probability of not scoring as high as the other two games. So I predict this Starfield, if it were just a retail game, would sell the least of the three. Now I have to decide between Spider-Man and Zelda. Mm. (laughs) Hmm, that's a tough one. I mean, I guess ultimately, I'm just going to go with the math, and the math says that Zelda is going to be the best-selling game of the three. There's just so many Switches out there, and I do realize that, and even my nephews and my nieces, they are really into playing, like, Zelda and Mario. They're into playing stuff like Fortnite, um, and so, you know, I, like, my nieces and nephews aren't excited for the new Zelda. They're not talking to me about it. They're still worried about where their next V-Bucks card is coming from, so... Um, I do think Zelda will sell the best. Which game will become Game of the Year? It's going to be Zelda. Unless Zelda is a complete travesty, it's going to be Zelda. If if the game is even a little bit better than Breath of the Wild, and all these journalists gave Breath of the Wild perfect tens already, how are they even going to score? <laughs> Tears of the Kingdom. Are they Are going to give it an 11 or a 12? Um, so I think Zelda right now has the inside track for Game of the Year. I think it also probably has the inside track to be the best-selling game of 2023. All right, that's gonna do it for this episode of Ask Shane Anything. Once again, thanks to everybody who pledges at $7 or more per month. Thanks to you guys, this show is possible. Now, as always, everybody gets to watch the archive. If you do wanna take part and ask me questions for the next round, make sure you bump up that pledge to $7 a month or more. We'll see you again. will <laughs> see you.